Hey everyone, it's Libba here from behind the scenes of the Cottrell Digital Studio. And today we have a special episode for you with Kim Franklin from the Georgia chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. This interview is part of our ongoing oral history project in which we interview folks who call Northeast Georgia home about their life experiences and insights. We'll be highlighting these interviews periodically on the podcast, and eventually we'll have an online archive where the public can access these for years to come. As all of you are aware, we are living in a historic moment right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. In this interview, you'll learn how the pandemic has affected organizations like the Alzheimer's Association, their staff, and especially those living with Alzheimer's and their caregivers. Next week, you'll hear from Dana Chapman on her experience in the nonprofit world and how the pandemic has affected her volunteers and staff that provided transportation for seniors. Here's my interview with Kim Franklin. All right, so I think we are all all set to begin, if you are, Kim. Okay. And let's just provide a brief overview of the organization and your position there. Okay. Um, so the Alzheimer's Association is the leading voluntary health organization in Alzheimer's care, support, and research. Um, our vision is a world without Alzheimer's disease and all other dementias. And our mission is um, to lead the way to end Alzheimer's and all dementias by accelerating global research, driving risk reduction and early detection, and maximizing quality care and support for individuals affected by the disease. Um, my position is I'm a program manager for the Georgia chapter. So I work within um, communities across the state to bring um, education, awareness, build relationships, to provide services and support for families and those affected by the disease. I, I'm curious to know, how did you find yourself? Uh, was it a personal reason that you chose this career or how did you find yourself in this, uh, in this career? Um, yes, it was a personal reason. My grandfather had Alzheimer's um, when I was in college. And so I started exploring at that point in time, a bachelor's degree in social work, just because I, I saw the services that my family didn't have or know about. Um, and so it led me to a degree in social work, like I said, to help in looking for ways to help families affected by things like this disease. Um, and then I did my internship with the Alzheimer's Association when I was in school and got out of school, worked in for-profit for a while, and then moved over to the Alzheimer's Association 13 years ago. I'd love to know more about your grandfather. Could you describe him for us? So he, at first, he started having um, issues with his memory. And this was early 2000 when it started happening. So obviously now we know a lot more about the disease than even was probably talked about back then. But he started having issues with his memories, kind of slow issues, a lot of issues with driving. First, his doctors diagnosed him just with being senile, said that, you know, it was normal aging memory loss. Um, then as it got worse, they started calling it dementia. And then as he was in the later stages, they gave it the name of Alzheimer's disease. And um, he ended up living in a community where he lived independently at first and then moved into assisted living. And then he was in a memory care unit there until he passed away. You mentioned that there's a lot more that we know now. In a broad sense, how has our understanding of Alzheimer's changed over the last, say, 20 or even 50 years? So I think a lot of people are usually shocked to know that Alzheimer's has been around since the early 1900s when Dr. Alzheimer's first diagnosed somebody with the disease. But 
nowadays we are able to clearly diagnose when a person's living, whereas in the past they couldn't really give an actual diagnosis until a person had passed away and they'd done a brain autopsy to see. But now there's more known about the disease. There's a lot more research that goes on about the progression of the disease in individuals. And so we just, we know a lot more about the disease. We're able to diagnose accurately when a person is living. And there's a lot of continuous research going on just about the disease itself. I mean, now they're saying the disease probably starts in the brain up to 20 years before a person starts showing any signs or symptoms that are significant enough to notice on the outside. So like I said, a lot of risk reduction research is being done, ways to actually diagnose it earlier on so that hopefully one day we'll have medication advancements or something that will actually stop that progression in the brain. The brain is a very complex organ, so unfortunately, these things take time. And as they say, with one failed clinical study, it's not losing hope because it just moves on to the next advanced research study that can be done. And for someone who has a family member who uh, has Alzheimer's, how do you generally approach any kind of Uh, advice on how to simply be with someone who has Alzheimer's, how to support them? I think the one thing we tell, the one difficult thing about this disease is that every person that's affected by it is very different. There's no two cases that look the exact same. Everybody's journey through the disease process is, is pretty different. I mean, families just need to know to be present with that person. You know, we tell families not to do like reality checks and things like that because These individuals have more long-term memory than they do short-term memory. So they usually can tell you stories that happened, you know, 50 years ago with accuracy, but they can't tell you what they just had for breakfast this morning. So to just kind of be present with them, go along with kind of their stories, meet them where they are. If they're talking about, you know, their parents or their childhood, ask questions around that instead of fact checking and saying, you know, you're 80 years old now, you're not, you're not 20 like you think you are. And I mean, just really, like I keep saying, be present with that person and just do the best you can to be a support system. Let them know they're safe and loved. And that's really the best thing that families can do. For people who have, say, parents or grandparents with Alzheimer's, I'm sure that can also take quite an emotional toll and be pretty exhausting on the child side. For people who are supporting parents or grandparents with Alzheimer's, what's some advice you can give them for caring for themselves in that situation? Caregivers have to take a break. And now through COVID-19 and this pandemic, I think more so now than ever, because families that were utilizing services such as adult day services, where they could take their loved one to a, a day facility to get that break, they don't have that access to that right now. And so now more than ever, families and caregivers have to find a way to get that mental break, to get that time alone, just to take care of themselves. I can't tell you how many times we see where caregivers are the ones ending up in the hospital and needing medical care because they're not taking care of themselves. They're so focused on taking care of their loved ones that they neglect themselves at that point. So making sure you get that break, reaching out to family and friends. And, you know, when they offer to do things for you, take them up on that because as, as guilty as I think some families feel about leaving their loved one with someone or leaving them home, because a lot of times they, they really want to be with that main caregiver. So 
I think caregivers start to feel guilty about leaving them, but they really, they've got to find a way to get that break so that they mentally can provide those, that care to their loved one and reach out for services that we have. Most of our services are completely free to families. Our 24 seven helpline is available anytime, day or night. And we hear a lot of times families say that that was their lifeline. Um, when something happened or they just needed an ear on the end, other end of the phone to provide that support emotionally, um, that that really saved them. And that's there for anybody, anytime, day or night. Um, and then our support groups, you know, joining a support group. And now it's really easy to join a support group because they're all virtual. So you can log on and join a support group and meet other people that are going through this journey as well so that you can hear how they deal with things, how they take that time and get that break for themselves and just and build a support system around other people that are walking in your shoes as well. You mentioned that a lot of exhaustion, not giving yourself a break, but uh, how else has the pandemic affected people with Alzheimer's? One big thing is the isolation. I mean, I think caregivers are feeling the isolation and that goes two ways. You've got caregivers that have their loved ones in a facility, whether it be a nursing home or an assisted living, and those places have been on lockdown. And even some of them now that have started allowing visitors to come in, they, they have to sit, you know, six feet apart. Some of them are still only doing window visits where you can see your loved one through the window. We've got a board member whose wife is in an assisted living and they do door visits so he can stand outside the door and talk to her. But that's really confusing for some individuals based on, you know, their level of progression, um, what, where they are in that disease process. If they're, you know, middle, late stages, some of them really don't understand what's going on. And it's hard for caregivers because they can't, you know, go feed their loved ones every day like they were doing. They can't hug their mom or dad who's in a community right now. So I think that side of the isolation, and then there's the side of the isolation of the families that have their loved ones at home with them. And again, they're not getting that break to where they can take them to an adult day center. Some of them have stopped the in-home care where caregivers come in to help provide care just because they're worried about a caregiver coming in and out of the house at that point in time. So I think the sheer isolation is the big, biggest thing we're seeing, both for caregivers and the, their loved ones. On the other side of that, people with Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia, they really thrive off routine and structure. And all of that's kind of been tossed out the window too at this point in time. There is no more routine going on. You know, people that were going for walks or, you know, going to an adult day center or a senior center, they can't do that anymore. So some of that structure has really gone away too. So there's a lot of isolation. There's a lot of, a lot more confusion. And I think a lot of families keep saying they're seeing a lot of decline in their loved ones too, just since all this started that, and that they're seeing some serious decline in their mental capacity and, and their ability to really function on their own as well. I think the biggest challenge right now is our constituents, those with the disease are at greatest risk, or more susceptible to developing, getting COVID-19 due to their age, due to their increased likelihood of coexisting chronic conditions. And so that separation, those communities that are on lockdown, I mean, I think they're doing what what they can do to keep their residents safe at this point in time. But we have been very instrumental in trying to put measures in place to kind of lift 
some of this as far as communities having access to the personal protective equipment that's needed, on-site testing, and then if there is an area where it becomes a hot spot, making sure that those communities, you know, get the services they need to contain it within that area. But I mean, like I said, I think the biggest challenge is that our constituents just are at such a great risk for developing this disease and then having detrimental effects if they do develop it. At your organization, just in on, on your side of things, how has the pandemic affected the way that you're able to work? So we're typically out in the community providing resources to families, doing education in person at senior centers, at different assisted livings, places like that. And we had to go completely virtual at the beginning of this. And again, part of that is our constituents are at greatest risk. And so we want to keep our constituents safe, our volunteers. We use a lot of volunteers out in the community to help provide our services. And then obviously keeping our staff um, safe as well. So all of our in-person went completely virtual. Any education we do is now virtual. All of our support groups have gone virtual. I mean, on the flip side of that, I think it's been a lifesaver for some families because those that couldn't access the support group because they are a caregiver and they can't leave their loved one home alone um, can now access those services at the click of a mouse because it is a lot easier. So we'll change the way we provide some services, um, doing more online, even when communities start to open back up. But then even events like our walk, we've had to completely change our walk and it's all gone pretty much virtual now. People can walk where they are with their family or how, whoever they feel safe with. And then still making sure families know that we are here. We are still providing the services, the support, everything that we were doing before. It just looks a little bit different because we're not boots on the ground in the community, but we are still providing all those levels of service that we were providing before. And we're a nationwide organization too. So nationwide, we were all still working um, remote at this point in time. Our offices have not opened back up. And unfortunately, I don't, I don't think they will until there's a vaccine, a cure, something that, you know, makes it safe for us to be back out in these communities providing those types of services in person. But again, you know, the virtual aspect of it, I think all of our education, we're going to do some larger scale events virtually starting in the next couple months. So we are going to be able to reach those that we might, necess- we might not necessarily have been able to reach before. And it also allows us to reach some of those rural communities where we weren't providing as many in-person activities. I think now we'll be able to be in those areas providing more support and services to those families that aren't as tied into the services that we've been offering. I'm sure that you've met a lot of really wonderful seniors through your career. Um, Can you speak to us about some of those memories that you have that you were, that kind of speak to why you are at this organization, why you chose this career, some of those personal stories? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think about that a lot and it's hard to just think about, you know, one or two things just because we do provide a lot of different services to families and caregivers, but providing services to families and those affected by the disease that, you know, they need the help and support and sometimes they don't know that there's services out there. So you meet these people and 
they they're like, oh my gosh, I, I wish I knew about you sooner. Or I wish I, I could have called for help sooner. And then I think about my own family and the journey with my grandfather. And we didn't know about services like this. So we didn't reach out for help and support or, you know, any kind of guidance when dealing with him and some of the stuff that went on with him. Just knowing that we're providing that help and support to families that they might not be able to access certain services or they might not know that certain things exist in the community without us being there to provide, you know, the help and support throughout the journey. And then I also think about those families that, yeah, we've met, we've met them early on through some of our early stage programs that we have where the person is um, pretty early on in the disease process and they're able to really talk and communicate. And then you, you, follow their journey through the disease to where now they're in the later stages. And it's just kind of bittersweet seeing it from beginning to end and making these relationships with not even just the person with the disease, but more so the caregivers. Um, And we have a lot of caregivers that even after their loved one um, passes away, they, they still engage with us. And now they're out there as a volunteer providing education and services in the communities, just as their kind of way to pay back for the support that we gave them while they were a caregiver. And it's just neat to have the relationships with those caregivers still that aren't really caregivers anymore. They've just got the experience of what it was like to be a caregiver for somebody with the disease. Yeah, that's that's got to be really rewarding uh, to have those people come back because they, they know how important the work that they've done, the work that you've done is. And for for the general public who might not know a lot about the disease, what do you wish that they did know? The biggest thing that people don't understand is, I mean, the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia. You know, a lot of times we use those terms interchangeably and Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia. And the way I explain it is dementia is just a general term. It's like the word cancer. You hear the word cancer. We know there's a lot of different kinds of cancer. There's a lot of different forms of dementia that exist out there. Like I said, Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia that we see. A lot of people don't understand that it is a progressive disease. It is degenerative. The person is going to get worse over time. So just knowing that there are programs, there are services out there to help families and support families throughout their journey with their loved one. And some people don't know either that we are the sixth leading cause of death in the United States right now. And we are the only cause in the top 10 causes that cannot be prevented, cured, or slowed. So unfortunately, at this point in time, we do not have any survivors of our disease, but there is hope. There's, you know, a lot, like I said, there's a lot of research going on and hopefully in the future, we will have that first survivor standing up at our walks, talking about their journey and surviving Alzheimer's disease. I'd like to thank Kim again for taking the time to be interviewed and especially for the important work that she and the Alzheimer's Association do each day. If you are interested in learning more about the Alzheimer's Association, you can visit their website at www.alz.com. Please join us next week when we share our interview with Dana Chapman, who was the executive director of the local nonprofit ITN Lanier, which sadly closed its doors due to the pandemic. Dana will share the challenges she and her team faced during the pandemic and what the pandemic means for seniors who do not have reliable transportation. Thanks for tuning in to Then Again, and we will see you next week. Stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. 
Join us for our weekly live streams each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Facebook Live and YouTube Live and our special members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Become a digital member for as little as $3 a month or $35 a year to enjoy all of our members-only programming at www.negahc.org member.